You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. so crazy about it's just music producer bob ezrin has not only worked on some of rock's most iconic albums but he survived hours in the studio with the likes of alice cooper roger waters and lou reed i'm greg cotta the chicago tribune and i'm jim deirgatis of wbez and columbia college we talked to bob ezrin about his career and reviewed the debut record from the alternative hip-hop act das racist that's coming up on Sound Opinions. that is that beautiful song, Endgame, that bridges side one and side two of one of R.E.M.'s most successful albums, Out of Time. 31 years as a band, 15 studio albums, the key group of our lifetimes in terms of bridging the transition from the indie rock 80s, where really great and inventive rock and roll was only ever heard by 200 people at a small club, like when I first saw R.E.M., to... The Alternative Explosion, suddenly becoming an arena act. Really, U2 and R.E.M. were the only two bands of our generation that became Rolling Stones-style arena superstars. Many people said they lost something along the way, and now comes the announcement made about a week and a half ago via the band's website that the group has decided it is time to call it a day. Each of the three remaining founders of the band, co-founder Bill Berry, left some time ago, and many people said that was the beginning of the end. They each had a quote. I think Stipes stands out, as most utterances from Michael Stipe do. A wise man once said, the skill in attending a party is knowing when it's time to leave. We built something extraordinary together. We did this thing, and now we're going to walk away from it. At least until the inevitable reunion tour down the road. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to see a reunion tour uh, anytime soon, but I think it's clear their their deal with Warner Brothers ran out, Jim. I think they felt like they'd said everything they could with this particular incarnation of the band. 31 years is a long time for anybody. I'd stack those first 15 years up against any band's legacy. I think they were extraordinary during that period. And we're going to go in-depth into that legacy on our next show when we talk about the career of R.E.M. Sedation You wanna feel at home 
You're listening to Sound Opinions, and Greg, we're joined now by visionary producer Bob Ezrin. He's been the force behind some of the most critically acclaimed and commercially successful albums in rock history. We're talking about Epics by Pink Floyd, Peter Gabriel, Kiss. But his relationship with Alice Cooper was there at the beginning and was one of the most fruitful of his career. The two collaborated on ten records, including the new one, Welcome to My Nightmare, two being the number two, and a sequel to the 1974 classic, Welcome to My Nightmare, which we heard on the way in. I think that that is typical of the work Ezrin has done. He does not make small albums. He builds giant skyscrapers and massive bridges. Concepts, heavy lifting, heavy records. I think that's his forte. And we're going to take him through some of these well-known albums. Bob Ezrin, welcome to Sound Opinions. It's my great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Why don't we start with how you fell into music? I was kind of born into it. People say, you know, when did you become a producer? And and my mom says that I was organizing things and uh, taking charge from the time I was one. (laughs) (laughs) Plus, uh, you know, the family was all musical. My grandfather was a song and dance man. My dad played bass. My mom played piano. I really didn't have any choice. I was in the music business before I knew there was a music business. Now, you were playing in bands at an early age. What made you gravitate towards the production side as opposed to the performance side of it? Um, I think that's probably most to do with my uncle's setup down in his basement because he not only had a great collection of stuff, he had tape machines. And uh, once a kid discovers a tape machine... (laughs) All hell breaks loose, and he would let me stay down there for hours and just mess about. So I'd have microphones and tape machines. I would record. I'd pretend to be a radio announcer <laughs> and uh, would create my own shows. I just loved recording, loved it. Plus, my siblings and I were doing a lot of television and radio from the time we were little, which was actually completely accidental. They, my brothers happened to be on a tour of the CBC, and they got plucked out of the crowd because they looked like they were like miniature versions of one of the guys that was a star on CBC TV who had a Saturday night show. The producer said, oh my God, they look they look like miniature billies. Do they sing? And my dad said, uh, five, six, seven, eight. And the boys started, you know, because we were a singing we were like a singing and dancing family. So they got hired on the spot and then they, then they started asking if there were any more at home and the next thing you know, we were all working all the time. So your first gig was producing Alice Cooper's 1971 breakthrough, Love It to Death. It sort of launched both of your careers. In 1970, you were hired by Jack Richardson. He was a big-name producer at the time. He'd worked with the Guess Who. And you're supposed to run around for like 100 bucks a week and, and find new talent for him, I guess, right? Well, in fact, I was hired to be like his advance man. I was hired to do pre-production for him. I've heard you tell this story. Max is Kansas City. You walk in, and everybody looks like a zombie. There's all this white face paint and black nail polish, black lipstick. You wind up producing that major hit, Love It to Death, in 71. Yeah. It, it was an amazing time, really. The business was exploding, but it was still pretty square. I mean, people were still in T-shirts and jeans, and uh, all you know, every rock band kind of looked the same. And then along comes this group of lunatics of indeterminate sex wearing ballerina costumes and uh, mirrored having mirrored instruments and playing this kind of weird-ass art rock. Nobody knew what it was. Frankly, Jack and, and my bosses, they were all in their 40s and, and really straight guys. They not only 
couldn't understand it. They just downright didn't like it, and they were kind of scared of it. So they sent me out to get rid of Alice Cooper. They sent me to New York <laughs> and said, get rid of Alice Cooper. That's your job. So I went to Max's Kansas City. First of all, the whole place was filled with people with spider eyes and spandex, jet black hair and jet black fingernails and black lipstick. I had never seen anything like it. It was the beginning, of, I guess, of the goth movement. But... Everybody in the joint knew every word to every song of these unreleased tunes. Then this is before Internet. It was an amazing thing. And the band was stunning. There was something scary, sexually exciting, you know, uh, powerful, pounding rhythmically and all that stuff. There was something magical about what they were doing. So I went upstairs and I said, we'll do it. We will produce you because (laughs) we think you can make hit records. And they said, that's great. We think you can, too. And then I walked out of Max's Kansas City. and I was standing out in the street in New York at 3 o'clock in the morning thinking, I am so fired. (laughs) (laughs) What kills me about that is that you uh, were steeped in this musical background. You'd obviously studied music, classically trained in a lot of ways. And yet you had this sort of broader cultural vision. You sort of the theater of it. You kind of, it seemed to me like you had a sense of almost how big it could be, even though at the time nobody thought Alice Cooper was this amazing band. He'd already put out a couple of records that nobody cared about. Frank Zappa had worked with him, I guess, and, and, and nothing happened. You obviously had a wider vision for this, for this sound. Well, to, listen, you know, you, if you were in that room, you would have had the same feeling. This wasn't rock music. This was like the beginning of a cultural movement. There's no T-shirts. There's no jeans. There's lights. There's sets. They run around. They got theater. They got antics. You know, the audience looks like them. They know all the words. The songs could be amazing, blah, blah, blah. blah. And Jack said, enough already. He said, if you like it so much, you do it. <laughs> so did you feel vindicated when the hits like I'm 18 and, and School's Out started coming? Absolutely. Of course, right? (laughs) Of course. Are you kidding? I was vindicated on a lot of levels because Warner Brothers was really, first of all, they thought that this was Jack Richardson producing this thing. And when they heard that there was this unknown kid that had zero track record, they freaked out. They would only let us do four songs. Jack said, I'll be there too. We're co-producing. I guarantee this will be good. And out of those first four songs came I'm 18. company got a copy of this thing and it got out in England and started to take off like instantly which sort of forced the American company's hand and then and then of course God bless Rosalie Tremblay who was the program director at CKLW in Windsor Ontario a very powerful station that beamed into Detroit and, yeah. and that whole region went nuts what you did there, too, I think it seemed like you, you had a role in shaping the music in a great way. Again, going back to those first couple of records, the band sounded nothing like they did once you got a hold of them. What exactly did you do with the sound? It was stripped down, it was tougher, it was leaner. Was that your influence? 
Well, yes, I think so. I think everybody was willing to do this. They didn't know how. As Alice puts it, it was a band of lead players. Everybody was lead. We had lead vocals, lead drums, lead bass, <laughs> you know, two lead guitar players. So everybody was playing everything all the time. And I think maybe my, uh, my classical training helped me to orchestrate. I like to tell people that my first heavy metal artist was Tchaikovsky. When you listen to The Prelude to Romeo and Juliet, when you listen to that, there's stuff in there that's so powerful, it's so big. Any heavy rock band could play it and it would just blow people away. There's always these elements. There's a melodic element, there's a counter melody, and there's a rhythmical element. And that was what I tried to bring into the Alice Cooper songs, while leaving enough space for Alice. Obviously, the big thing is this is the story. You know, it's the the vocal melody, but it's the lyrics too. You've got to understand what he's saying because that's the the essence of the song. And in doing that, things simplified. They got tighter, and they got magically more powerful. So. This is Sound Opinions, and our guest is super producer Bob Ezrin. Now, Bob, you did nine albums with Alice Cooper in the 70s and 80s, and now, all these years later, you are back working with him again. I sure am, and I'm, and I'm really loving it. I think he is, too. How did that come about, and, and tell me about making the new record. It came about, they, they were, um, uh, Shep and Alice were asked to license five tracks to Guitar Hero, I think. Shep is like the ultimate gentleman uh, manager. There aren't very many left. And he called me to say, you know, we're going to re-record these songs that you recorded originally. I want, just want you to know that we're doing that. And oh, by the way, we'll still pay you your producer's points, but you don't have to do anything. First of all, I was totally taken aback by that because a number of bands I've worked with in the past have gone on to re-record and not paid anybody because mm-hmm. yeah. that's just the way it is, right? So I was just like, wow, so impressed with that. And then I thought, you know what? I'm not letting anybody else touch those songs. <laughs> if they're going to re-record them, I'm going to re-record them. Mm-hmm. So we went in and re-recorded five songs very quickly, you know, on a Guitar Hero budget, but whatever it was. And then Alice shows up in Nashville to sing the vocals. That's where I'm living, in Nashville, and I have a little studio there. So Alice shows up in Nashville to sing the vocals, walks in the front door and says, so anyway, and we were back to where we were <laughs> 20 years ago, you it know, the last stopped. time that we were in the studio. It, it, like, like nothing had changed and like we hadn't dropped a beat. It was so good. It was so instantly, comfortable is not a good word, but energizing and inspiring and exciting that after we finished doing that, we just looked at each other and went, you know, we got to keep going. This is too good. I am made of you. 
felt kind of proprietary. That, that this was your art. You know, obviously it's mainly Cooper's, right? His name's on it. But you had a stake in this in this music too. Have you felt that way about all the records you've produced? Um, no, uh, n- nobody can feel that way about everything that they do. There are some sure. things I'd rather forget, actually. <laughs> but um, but there are, you know, the, the the key ones and the ones that are mostly the ones that are already pretty popular, those ones meant a lot to me. And there's a few that people didn't really give enough attention to, in my opinion, that also mean a lot to me. Alice and I have been brothers since 1970. So... That's a relationship that means a tremendous amount to me. It goes beyond the records. This is a man I love. I love Cheryl. I love the family. We've stuck together through all these years. When I got inducted into the Canadian Music Hall of Fame, there was no question as to who I wanted to have present the award. And Alice, when he got asked, he said, I'm not letting anybody else do it. Hmm. So, yes, I'll be there. He and I have remained friends. And Peter Gabriel and I have remained dear friends. And the same thing with, with Dave Gilmore and... Even Roger, we got over our differences and, and uh, we're friends again and stuff. And Lou Reed, Lou Reed and I have been, again, like brothers for 40 years. up our conversation with Bob Ezrin after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later on in the show, Jim and I review the debut album from the hip-hop group Das Racist. Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott, and we've been talking with producer Bob Ezrin. That song, 
The wonderful Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel was just one of Ezrin's successful recordings from 40 years in the music business. He's worked on some of rock and roll's most epic albums from bands like Pink Floyd, Kiss, and Alice Cooper. And he just teamed up for a tenth time with that heavy metal legend to make Welcome to My Nightmare, to the number. Bob, what we'd like to do is take you through the recording of some of these albums. Why don't we start with Gabriel? You produced his self-titled debut as a solo artist after he left Genesis in 1977. When you think back to that album, what's the story that comes back to you right away? Uh, the, uh, the best story is about the song Modern Love, which has the chorus, uh, Oh, the pain, modern <laughs> love can be a strain, right? And as Peter was singing it, I just was not believing it. It was, you know, it, it was kind of polite and very English. He was very polite in English in those days. And, and uh, so I said to him, we were in a studio that had two big pillars in the middle of the room. And I said, you know, I'm going to give you three more shots at this. And if you don't get it, you're going up the pillar. And, and, <laughs> and, and he, he just looked at me and smiled because he didn't really understand what I was saying. So we did, you know, we tried one. Nope, not that. Nope. And, and I said, you got one more. You're going up the pillar. He tried it. Didn't work. So I turned to Brian Christian, the engineer I talked about earlier, who happened to be 225 pounds of solid muscle from Southside Chicago. Mm-hmm. Just a tough guy. So I said, Brian, put him up the pillar. We went in the room. Brian lifted him in the air. And I had the second engineer gaffer tape him under the armpits to the pillar up in the air about about 10 feet up. And then I said, mic him. <laughs> wow. And I said, roll tape. Now there he was flailing in midair, hanging from his armpits 10 feet in the air. And when he sang, oh, the pain, <laughs> he meant it. <laughs> Peter Gabriel willingly complied with this request, or was it just Peter an Gabriel was duress? the best? He was he was the best sport and very playful too. That that whole album was filled with pranks and jokes and funny things. And I mean, when we went out to the closing dinner, we did the barbershop quartet from "Excuse Me" live in the restaurant. We just stood up and sang it, and we got big applause. And I said, "We're here every Thursday night. Please come back. Bring your friend." <laughs> Excuse me. Y'all wearing out my schwa-da-vi. There was a great spirit in the making of that whole record. Well, you have worked with some people from the outside anyway who have this reputation as being incredibly dour, and Peter is, is one of them. I mean, an intellectual and obviously one of the smartest men you'd ever want to encounter, I would imagine. But you're saying that there's a different side to this guy. That was Oh, a- he's got a fantastic sense of humor. He's, yeah. you know, there was in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, the original movie, they talked about Mr. Smith being pixelated. That's Peter, you know, not in the sense, not in the monitor sense of the word, but, you know, there's a pixie in there and there's just a funny, 
very English, so it's very dry, but it's very funny and kind of playful, and uh, there's a sort of playful prankster in there. Speaking of playful pranksters, that just brings to mind immediately Lou Reed. Uh, <laughs> and that's, oh, yeah. uh, that's meant uh, <laughs> Mr. Fun. Extreme <laughs> irony. Uh, but uh, oh. beloved album, Berlin, uh, 1973. Every story I've ever heard about that album, Bob, is that it was just this absolute torture fest for everyone involved. What's your story about that record? Um, it was a torture fest. It, it was in t- just incredibly intense. First of all, look at the material. It seems a little pale now after all the stuff we've been exposed to in the, in the last four decades. But uh, for the time, it was pretty raw stuff. But she's not afraid to die All of her friends call her Alaska When she takes speed They laugh And ask her What is In her Mind What is In her Mind Talking about drug addicts And speed and Waking up shaking after being in a, you know in a sort of sp- on a speed binge for five days and stuff like that. People weren't talking about that sort of stuff. Lou was talking about that sort of stuff, and it was you know about spousal abuse and suicide. I mean, all the kind of zany madcap themes of life. And we were in London. It was the fall, so it was rainy and dark. It was back in the days when drugs were good and sex would not kill you. <laughs> so there was a lot of that afoot, and and there was some. There were some tensions in the room uh, between some of the players, between Lou and less between Lou and me than just between Lou and life. He was going through some stuff at that time in his marriage. And I think that all of that's pretty well documented. Anyway, it was difficult, but it was still thrilling. Mm -hmm. It may have been difficult, but there were moments where everybody just looked at each other in awe when they would play stuff. I mean, much of that record was, was certainly the the rhythm tracks were cut live. Mm. Everybody in the room, you know, wow, what a concept. In- Nobody does that anymore. Incredible band, but, too. Oh, what a band. And there were, there were sometimes like the jam on the end of O Jim, and, you know, it's just stuff coming out of these people that I had never heard played before. They were, you know, making love musically on the ends of some of these songs. about the song Kids. This has got to be the number one thing people wonder about with the recording of Berlin. The character Caroline is having her kids taken away and there's children crying, shouting. There are children crying and yelling for mommy. So uh, at that stage, David was already five and a half and smart beyond his years and Joshua was one and a half. Two things happened. these, These were recorded at separate times. The really mournful, just, oh, my God, you want to just kill yourself, cry, is comes after the following words. Joshua, bed. <laughs> Joshua hated to go to bed.
One night I brought a Niagara into the house and held the microphone over him and went, Joshua, bed. <laughs> and and I captured that moment forever. Oh, wow. So then the other one, the other bit, which is the pounding on the door and the yelling for mommy, I said to David, look, I'm doing this little little piece. It's about a little boy. I didn't want to tell him that she was you know, having her children taken away. It's not something you want to tell a five-year-old. But I was saying, it's a little boy, and he's trying to get in the house, and his mommy's inside, and she can't hear him. So I want you to pound on the door and yell, Mommy, as loud as you can. So he's pounding on the door yelling, Mommy, Mommy, and Joshua comes running down. So he gets into the act and goes, Mommy, Mommy, and starts yelling too, and the two of them pound on the door. So that's it. It's really, really tame, and I'm sorry to dispel the myth yeah. that I tortured them or told them that their the 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 urban myth is that I told them their mom was dead. Yeah, that there were, you, you told them a lie, and then they reacted, and yeah. yeah. In 1973, this was this was harrowing stuff, and I'm quoting now from the Rolling Stone review, Bob. Sorry to sorry to bring this up, but this is the Rolling Stone review in 1973. There are certain records that are so patently offensive that one wishes to take some kind of physical vengeance on the artists that perpetrate them. <laughs> I mean, they... <laughs> uh, to say, That's great. So this record was somewhat misunderstood, to say the least, when, when it came out. How did you feel about it when it was done? I thought it was genius. I, I thought the record was absolutely brilliant. You know, at that time, I didn't know a hit single from, uh, you know... I mean, I wasn't chasing hits, which is what we do as an industry right now. We're always just chasing a hit. We don't really care about anything else. What I was chasing was a vision and attempt to create a work of art. Like, we really believed that this thing would go out live. That was the original plan. This was was going to be a show. We had a set design and everything, and it would have been an amazing show, by the way, the way we we visualized it. And it became an amazing Mm -hmm. show just a few years ago. Right. But... At that time, you know, this was about putting a, a theatrical piece out. This was the accompanying record. And uh, you know, I thought this thing was going to be very successful because it was great art. As it turns out, over the years, it has been very, very successful. It just wasn't received very well initially. Although, you know, there were other reviews that called it genius. Yeah. And, and um, it's, it's a provocative and controversial record, and actually I'm very proud of that. Well, some people would say from the sublime to the ridiculous, but let me throw another record at you. 1976, Kiss, Destroyer. Yes. What stands out? I love it. It is. I love Destroyer. I loved making that record. I loved working with those guys. Again, it was just a party, and we laughed through the whole making of the record. (laughs) There were a few challenging times. We had some issues with with Ace, and those are also very well documented. But what stands out for me is when we in Studio A, that is Kiss and and the crew, declared war on Grand Funk Railroad in Studio B. <laughs> A favorite and, of and Greg's. What, yeah. Oh, yeah. And what we did was we went out and we bought every cream pie in the neighborhood, and we snuck them into the building through the back door. We all bought cheap uh, sweat gear. When we dressed up like ninjas, we got our cream pies and our (laughs) fire extinguishers. And at the set hour, which was, I believe, midnight, we turned out the lights and hit them. 
<laughs> it was fantastic. <laughs> and actually, apparently, it cost like a thousand dollars to clean the studio on the. We did it on a Saturday, right? And when Eddie Germano, who was the manager of the studio, came in, he was he couldn't believe what he saw. He was beyond mortified. But that was great. That was a really great experience. And that was kind of the that was the spirit of the thing. There was lots of that, lots of pranks. And after a while, you just have to have a release. So I used to always have crazy little things planned that I would spring on the band, little surprises that they would love and, and would blow <laughs> off steam. And then we'd go in and, and usually immediately following one of those, we'd cut the best take. Let me ask about the sound of Destroyer. I mean, and I mean this in the best possible way. To me, if I had to choose one album that is the sound of a comic book, it's that album. I mean, there's something playful and absurd. You know, the colors are brighter, the noise is louder, and the perfect match of oral presentation and what they were doing on stage. Well, thanks, because that was the idea. And I I like to try to do that with everybody that I work with. It was the perfect cartoon soundtrack because they were the perfect cartoon band. Mm. They made no bones about it. They played comic book heroes. way i wish spider-man on broadway had done something similar to what we did and not been tried to be so dark it's it's a comic book that was a goal on that record and i think we accomplished it and and then the other side was i was becoming aware of radio i was becoming aware of making hit songs and the fact that this band needed another radio record so i was really trying to make the songs as radio friendly as possible while keeping all that character well you succeeded totally with that song beth which uh, in a lot of ways changed the perception of the band beth i hear you calling but i can't come home right now me and the boys are playing and we just can't find the sound Just a few more hours And I'll be right home to you I think I hear them calling Oh Beth, what can I do? Beth, what can I do? Did they go to that place willingly, you know, a ballad like that, uh, which, no, in opposition to their style of previous years? Let me save you some time. No. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, there was a, a political requirement that Peter get one song on the record. Ace had to have a song or two on the record. And Peter came in with the song called Beck, B-E-C-K. It was jaunty, actually. And I thought, you know, this is exactly why the band's entire audience base is 15 year old pimply boys hmm. because they're just that you know they're just so puerile they're just so boyish so part of the mandate for me on that record was to make them more accessible to women and to make them more apparently vulnerable while not losing the cartoon quality and not losing their you know sex appeal so the idea in Beth was you know make it more romantic 
So I said to Peter, can I take this home and mess around with it a little bit? And he said, oh, that's fine. And I took it back to my apartment, came up with that piano line, slowed it way down, changed the lyrics so that now it was about a failed relationship. And the boys, you know, me and the boys will be playing all night. That's his escape. If I know you're lonely And I hope you'll be alright Cause me and the boys will be playing All night You're listening to Sound Opinions. We're talking with producer Bob Ezrin. Bob, we would be remiss in not bringing up your role in The Wall, and I think we've been talking about some really challenging personalities that you've worked with over the decades. Is there anyone more challenging than Roger Waters? Um, yes. <laughs> yeah, there, there are people more challenging than Roger Waters, because the reality is, you know, he was tough, but he wasn't impossible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Roger's difficult, but he is more difficult on himself. He's harder on himself than he is on anybody. And we actually had that conversation during the making of the wall. I had to take him outside and say, look, you know, you can beat yourself up all you want. I know that's how you get better and that's how you how you achieve what you achieve. But you can't beat everybody else up. It's not fair. He is a difficult, arrogant, single-minded, fairly egocentric guy but who isn't? Hmm. You know, and the difference between Roger and the rest of us is simply that he has the power to be able to exercise it. Most of us are afraid to let it loose because someone will deck us. So there were these long, intense, sometimes confrontational recording sessions going on through 1979, as you said. But what about the moments of silliness? What about the fun? Well, the nope buttons. Did you hear about those? That the Roger had buttons made that said N-O-P-E? <laughs> no. Uh, we had gone away for a holiday, and then we'd come back. And everybody had buttons on that said nope. It was like English schoolyard bully stuff. Right. The nope button stood for no points for Ezrin. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. That's oh, what a man. sweetheart. Yeah, really. What a sweetheart. Thanks, Raj. Yeah. Thank you very much. But, you know, people talk about the, the difficult times, but again, there was a tremendous amount of laughter and there was an awful lot of energy and uh, moments of intense inspiration. You know, just like times when we'd be in tears, we'd be listening back to something like that solo, Uncomfortably Numb, mm. when Dave th- threw that. And by the way, that that's a first take. It was astounding. That is astounding, and uh, Comfortably Numb nearly wasn't on the album, right? I mean, you had to lobby to get that on the record, right? I had to lobby to get Dave's stuff on the record. 
because originally the concept was that this was really a Roger album and um, he was writing everything. He made it very clear that, you know, I could write, but don't expect any points for it. And uh, I mean, it was it was very much it was kind of like this is my piece. I mm-hmm. came up with this concept. It's my piece. And, and I need your help to deal with the other guys, basically. Mm. Uh, so I was kind of hired as the go between. But, I, you know, that's not the role I played. I, I actually ended up properly producing the record and that required that there be some Dave. Roger's got a lot of intense emotion but when it comes to the gentle heart Mm -hmm. of things while Roger can write it he doesn't sing it that well and Dave does and then there's when it comes to the lyrical and kind of you know bluesier side of things that's Dave's thing he writes that very well so it was very important to introduce Dave to the process he came in with a song the first thing I said is I need a song in D because we had this moment and we had to tell this part of the story. We actually had a script that I wrote that was based on songs that Roger had written. And there were a few slugs here and there that said TBW, to be written. Mm -hmm. One of those being Comfortably Numb was where, well, Pink realizes that he's, you know, he's totally lost it. So I said, I need a song in D, something romantic. Anybody got anything? You know, and Dave picks up a high string guitar and starts to play that chorus with an entirely different lyric, of course. I fell in love with it, and I said to Roger, you know, we got to, you know, let's do this, you know, and can you finish this song? And at first he was very resistant to the idea of of working on Dave's song. Hmm. But, you know, we made it enough of a challenge, and he went away. I didn't hear anything about it. Then one day he came in and played me the demo, handed me a lyric sheet that said, there is no pain, you are receding. A distant ship, smoke on the horizon." You're only coming through in waves. Your lips move, but I can't hear what you're saying. When I was a child, I had a fever, and my hands felt just like two balloons. Now I have that feeling once again. This is not me. You would not understand. But I have become comfortably numb. And I'm like, oh, my God. God, I almost fell on the floor. This is genius. You've continued to work steadily since those famous days in the 70s with Gilmore, as you said, but also Jay-Z, the Deftones. Looking back at your discography in the past decade, what stands out to you? What are you most proud of? Oh, I hate that. That's like Sophie's <laughs> Choice. You know, I know, right, I, right. I, yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, which one of your kids is best? <laughs> I, you know, I think maybe, I'll tell you what, maybe the high point moment wasn't an album at all, but it was 
producing the segment that reopened the Superdome after Katrina, mm-hmm. which we did for the pregame show for Monday Night Football at the Superdome with Green Day and U2. That 12 minutes was among the most emotional of my life. We were standing in a building where just one year before people had died. There were 70,000 people in the stands, and we had U2 and Green Day come out and sing the song, The Saints Are Coming, which then went into September, you know, uh, Green Day's big song, and then segued into It's a Beautiful Day. When we hit It's a Beautiful Day, we had these huge floodlights behind the band that that hit the audience with millions of, of kilowatts of light, and the whole room went nuts. Everybody was on their feet, everybody was singing, and everybody was in tears. It was the most emotional moment. It was the moment, I think, that New Orleans came back to life. Above the waters of Lake Pontchartrain See the bird with the leaf in her mouth After the flood occurs Came out And of course that night the Saints just killed the Falcons. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking with producer Bob Ezrin on Sound Opinions. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you. Now we want to hear from you. Do you remember the first time you heard Beth or 18? Tell us about your memories of these classic Ezrin songs and albums at 888-859-1800. And check out our other producer interviews at soundopinions.org. Coming up, Greg and I review the hip-hop debut from Das Racist. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. The book of love is long and boring No one can lift the damn thing it's full of charts and facts and figures And instructions for dancing But I, 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 I love it when you read to me And you Get that money, meathead, street bread, weed, green head. Young 
Charles Ponzi, walk off like a Fonzie, sipping Don P, Don Glassy, John Africa, Buddha, Zoo, they write down my Agatha Christie mysteries, Officer Rick Rod, Go Chain, Mr. T's, open every cell and out of cuss, selling Acuras, it's a commercial, room full of Dracula's, big commercial, which little idiot wanna fill my piggy bank up more, much more, big four, Rushmore, Larry Johnson, the best first godson, Terry Clark, Kango, Luke Driscoll, Zix on Dodge, Durango, Rango, Johnny Depp in it, Bay, repping it, Alameda, don't step in it, used to stay there, now I stay where young Icarus went to daycare, hey there. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and you're listening to the song Happy Rappy from the rap group Das Racist and their debut album, Relax. Das Racist met in college, Wesleyan University out east, made some noise on the internet with the song Combination Pizza Hut and Taco Bell in 2008. (laughs) With a title like that, it seemed destined for one-hit wonder novelty status, but they returned two years later with a couple of mixtapes, Shut Up Dude and Sit Down Man, with the help from Diplo, the producer, and established themselves as very credible MCs. Now we have the official debut album, the first one they want you to actually pay for. We're going to let you know in a second whether or not it's worth it, but let's play a track from Relax first. It's called Michael Jackson from Das Racist on Sound Opinions. Michael Jackson, a million dollars, you feel me? Holla. Michael Jackson, one million dollars. That is the song Michael Jackson from the first official album by Das Racist, Relax. Greg, many of us have been mourning the death of playfully psychedelic, wildly inventive hip-hop since the heyday of like De La Soul's Three Feet High and Rising or the Beastie Boys' epic Paul's Boutique. We've had the Beasties on this show tell us an album like that could not be made today because of the restrictions put on sampling. I am not going to say Relax is the equal of either of those two classics. I am going to say it comes really close. Some people who loved the first two mixtapes have said this is a letdown. I think that this is a leap forward. Musically, certainly, there's a carnival aspect to this music. There's a video, vintage video game soundtrack aspect, but it's so layered, so dense, so ever-shifting. It's like the Bomb Squad if they were high on ecstasy. And the lyrics are just as inventive. These guys are overdosed with popular culture. They're referencing Jeff Mangum of Neutral Milk Hotel. They're inventing Wikipedia Brown. They're talking about White Castles and the catchphrase from the Tootsie Roll Tootsie Pop commercials. The lines are very, very funny. 
Some people are saying it's all one-note jokes. There's no meaning there. But I think they're questioning their place in the universe. They knew they were fairly privileged kids up at Wesleyan. They're making fun of the jam bands at Wesleyan. And now they're wondering, where do we fit in hip-hop? Where do we fit in America? This is a multicultural band. And they're wondering, what good is this cashmere if they're still dying in cashmere? (laughs) And then they're turning around and making a Chris Farley joke. I think that this is a roller coaster ride that is giddy, exciting, invigorating. I'm going to be listening to this album for as long as I've listened to Paul's Boutique and still finding new stuff. I can't be more enthusiastic in my buy it. It's a great album, Jim. Relax is an apt title, too, and I think people kind of, when they buy into that title, they're hearing maybe they're too relaxed, maybe they're too easygoing. You tend to underestimate them when you first hear them because they're just so laid back. And then you start paying attention to what they're talking about and you go, there's just this stream of consciousness coming at you, these da-da connections they're making. They're throwing out words like sophistry, like, yes, the learned college students they are. They're working with these really non-mainstream type producers they're giving them some different textures to, to wrap over. That's one thing. Then what are they doing with those textures? I think what they're doing here is satirizing hip-hop to the nth degree, but also themselves. They're, they're yeah. realizing they've got problems, too. The joke's on them as much as it is hip-hop. So they're undercutting all these cliches that they're seeing in mainstream rap. They're undercutting themselves. The jokes are flying. By the time you catch up with that joke three lines ago, they're on to something totally new. And I think just the fact that this humor and this sense of, you know, we're not such a big deal. You know, we're not talking about our prodigious sex life or our prodigious mic skills is a very refreshing take on the hip-hop tradition. And it stands out among hip-hop releases in 2011 in a way that I think does merit comparison to those Della Soul and Beastie Boy records that you were citing, Jim. So I'm going to give it a buy it as well. So two very enthusiastic buy-its for Relax by Das Racist. What do we have on the show next week, Greg? Next week, Jim, we are going to look at the 31-year, 15-album career of R.E.M. As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out, Greg. Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Robin Lynn and Jason Saldana with the able assistance of Annie Minoff. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, is Tori Southside Malatia. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. New messages. Hi, Sound Opinions. My name is Webb Andrews. I'm from North Carolina. I just wanted to say that I just listened to your show. I didn't know the group. The Handsome Furs. But I was quite impressed. They're like a, a fusion of the cars and Rico Kasich and techno. Man, that is good. That is really good. Thank you. Where did the future go? I was feeling down. I was feeling so low. Had to get out. Had to get out. Parts unknown. Hello, gentlemen. My name's Peter Calder, and I'm calling from Chicago. Thank you so much for introducing me to um, the Handsome Furs. Great interview, but mainly fantastic music. As for St. Vincent, I actually had to pull out the uh, rarely used Yoko Ono 
scale of vocal and musical distress, I'd give Annie Clark a, a six on a scale of ten. vocal style is just abominable. It makes my hair stand on end. So thanks for turning me on to a great band, but St. Vincent doesn't even make the list. Thanks. Bye. It's that same same sound of the childhood bell ringing in my soul. This is Brian calling from Denver. I loved the recent show about funk with Bootsy. But I feel I would be remiss if I didn't throw my proverbial two cents in. To me, it doesn't get any funkier than Larry Graham and Graham Central Station. And it seems that he doesn't get mentioned as much in modern-day discussions of, uh, you know, the roots of funk. But anybody who loves funk has got to wrap their ears around the jam by Graham Central Station, which is, in my humble yet uh, loud opinion, the funkiest song I have ever heard. The song is basically a lengthy band intro where they introduce themselves and then get to show off in the solo, and, and there is nothing more satisfying on earth than hearing Larry Graham drop into his solo on that. Damn. My name is Larry Graham, but they call me. Jim and Greg, this is Greg in Irwin, North Carolina. The Bootsy Collins interview you guys did was one of the reasons that I love the show so much. I've got a Rhino compilation and a James Brown compilation. I've always felt that was most of the funk I needed. But it was great to have somebody like Bootsy Collins comb through the scene. Also, I'm sure you're going to be eulogizing REM. And I want to take the opportunity to say that I hope, in retrospect, their post-Bill Berry era will get some more respect. You know, they were great in the IRS years in the 80s. They were great in the Warner Brothers major label era. But they were also great after Berry left. They still did some, some good work. Crash, land, no illusions, no collision, no intrusion. My imagination run away. You trashed their last album by saying it was just kind of a facsimile of early R.E.M., which is fine if that's your opinion, but I think you need to be consistent because the Decemberists released an album earlier this year, which was essentially a facsimile of early R.E.M., and you praised it to the heavens. If you're going to slam R.E.M. for copying R.E.M., you ought to slam the Decemberists for the same thing. Take care. Keep it up. Quiet now. Will we gather to conjure the rain down? And I'll be crowned the community No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.